Welcome to the Runway VC Podcast, a podcast where we talk with experts and disruptors about how they're influencing the future of aviation and travel. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. We are currently at a Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and as usual, welcome to another episode of the Runway VC Podcast. On this episode, we have Brendan McCord and Chris McLaughlin from Evolve Technologies, a startup that's bringing artificial intelligence into airport security. I met Brendan back in October at the AAAE Innovation Forum, and their approach to airport security is something smart. I heard him pitch Evolve to the audience and saw their approach to technology as something smart and pretty practical. They're definitely not a company using quote-unquote AI as a buzzword, but actually putting it into practice. I know this conversation is a little bit longer, but we get into some great topics and dive deep into what using AI means, not just from a safety standpoint, but also from a privacy standpoint. We also talk about how to get in front of the inherent bias that AI may present itself through the code. And we wrap up our conversation talking about the future of security and how to protect ourselves from threats that we just don't see yet. Uh, Brendan and Chris also have some recommendations for those airports out there that are looking to expand their terminals or build new ones on how to keep their security areas ready to adapt to any new technologies coming down the pipe. So enough of my intro. Here's my conversation with Brendan and Chris. Brendan and Chris, how are you guys doing today? Very well. Doing well. Good to hear. Good to hear. So uh, before we get started, why don't we give a little bit of background information. I'll kind of let you guys do your intros so our listeners can differentiate the voices uh, throughout our conversation. So Brandon, why don't you, uh, you give us a little bit of your background and, and how you got to uh, Evolve Technology? Sure. So for a little bit about me, this is Brendan McCord speaking. My role at Evolve is I head up the team that's building our software and intelligence platform, which is called Mosaic. And I have a background in technology from MIT, an initial focus in nuclear engineering and nuclear weapons, and have done weapons work at Cyndia National Lab, but also spent 610 days underwater on a fast attack submarine. So I got uh, a bit of time at the front lines in an operational capacity, um, which, as you'll hear, nowhere near the, you know, the length of, of kind of operational focus that uh, the other member of Evolve team who's on the call is, um, but got a lot of appreciation for um, Other thing I'll say is that I have a personal connection to the aviation space. My grandfather was a naval aviator, and I grew up hearing stories about um, him spending years in the Antarctic flying um, planes in on icy runways and trying to dodge penguins. So he, uh, he was a, (laughs) so he was a, he was a huge inspiration in the aviation field. Um, and I love working with, uh, with airport and aviation community members. So a little bit about how I came to evolve. I am personally very interested in the future of security, both Homeland security and national security. I'm passionate about how you can bring technology to uh, to bear to reinvent security uh, in those domains. And what I found at Evolve was 
a unique combination of just stellar team, which we can speak to later, um, bleeding-edge technology in both sensors and in artificial intelligence and kind of software domain, and then this wonderful um, mission focus where it is, it is not the case that many startups are working on the, the problems that we're working on today in physical security. They're not sexy problems by any means, but we've put together this interdisciplinary team to go take them on. And so the feeling that the work we're doing is important is, is huge. So I, um, I met Mike, the CEO, and was, was inspired by his articulation of the mission and joined the company um, almost three years ago, right around at the founding. So I've been, I've been with Evolve for, for a long time. Okay, great. Well, uh, and I, before we go any further, I just want to thank you for your service. Uh, 610 days on a sub. That's, uh, I would imagine you get very close to your uh, <laughs> crew members. Uh, <laughs> That's I don't right. Know, I, I can't do a weekend on a cruise ship, so I don't know if I can do <laughs> uh, 610 days on a, on, a, on a sub. So thanks again for your service. Well, I look back with fondness, but I'm I'm glad to be in the uh, area office in, in Boston here. Yeah, but thank you. <laughs> um, okay, Chris, why don't we we kind of get a little bit of your background? You've had a, a pretty interesting background, specifically working with aviation uh, security, correct? Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon, everybody. Chris McLaughlin recently joined Evolve. Actually, I've been with Evolve for. Uh, just under two months now. Started my aviation career, not dodging penguins in the Antarctic, but um, in Aspen, Colorado, working for a small regional airline, uh, doing work for United Express at the time. Obviously, I guess not obvious, but that was before 9-11. And so that's where I began my aviation career. I would say really at a period when, you know, despite the fact that 9-11 had yet to occur, a period when aviation was really starting to struggle. It was not the glory days any longer. Deregulation was certainly having its impact on the viability of the industry. During my time, um, then 9-11 occurred, and it was a day like, like for, for you know, virtually everybody in industry and, and still a large number of people in our country. It was, a, it was a, a day that changed our lives forever, and for those people that were intimately involved with aviation, it was very immediate and impactful in terms of uh, both uh, viability and the sense of security that, that people felt. I continued in aviation, uh, worked in, in commercial aviation for a, a period of time longer, um, watched things like uh, Liquid's plot happen in 2006, and watched the industry that was just starting to recover again start to tip into a nosedive. So after the urging of some friends and colleagues who asked me to consider joining the TSA. I ultimately joined TSA as the federal security director overseeing security for Denver International Airport in Colorado and was there during a period when uh, John Pistol uh, took over the TSA as the administrator and started publicly talking about this notion of risk-based security. Uh, it was now known primarily as PreCheck, TSA PreCheck. At the time, it was just a notion he asked me to come uh, with others and work on the risk-based security initiative for the TSA. Um, I found myself in a room with some uh, very smart people um, working through the problem, and a couple months later, we were ready to start um, rolling out this TSA pre-check product that gave back, I think, considerable freedoms to the traveling public. Uh, from there, I spent a couple years in D.C. as the Assistant Administrator for Security Operations, where I ran 
uh, security for the 400, roughly 450 commercial airports uh, across the country did that uh, with really a great amount of pride. The TSA gets its, its share of, of black eyes, but fundamentally it's, it's a group of people, you know, 50,000 plus people um, who are striving to keep the skies, primar- primarily the skies safe for the 2 million plus people that are traveling every day. These are people that are dedicated to their mission and focused on success. So it was really, it was, it was, I hate, don't know if I can use the word fun, but it was fun to lead that organization and, and fight the, the, the difficult fight every day. That being said, I felt that there was more that could be done, um, in the aviation security space. Always had an eye open to innovative solutions. Um, had heard about an edge-like product way early and it's, uh, in the thinking phase of Edge from some colleagues inside DHS Science and Technology. And then ultimately this summer learned about Evolve, learned about its initial product offerings, and evaluated it as what I think is really the logical next step in not just aviation security, but but soft target security as well. I think that uh, it's a company, it's a vision, as Brendan alluded to, the president and the CEO both have an absolute vision for what this company can do in this space and truly have a passion for the actual mission. They care deeply about the ability to improve our way of life by enhancing security in a way that doesn't uh, bring transportation or, frankly, just movement to a standstill. So uh, that's the nutshell. I'm grateful to be here at Evolve. I think we've got uh, great things ahead of us and looking forward to, to making some of it happen. And now before Evolve, you were also with Clear, correct? I, I, I was, yes. I'm sorry. I, I was with Clear for just about a year and a half. actually left Clear to join Evolve. Sure. And Clear, now, again, is another great company uh, doing uh, interesting things in the aviation space. Yeah, it's interesting that you specifically are able to kind of see both sides of the public aspect, and I say public by public-funded aspect of security, um, and now jumping to on the other side of the fence to the private side and, and privately funded security. I guess specifically for you, Chris, and, and Brendan, you can kind of jump in as well, but are you seeing a benefit in terms of companies like Clear and Evolve now working within what is which has been since 9-11, uh, TSA's space almost at airports? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, fundamentally what I'll tell you is that you know, cutting my teeth in the in the airport world and and doing it from an airline perspective and then a federal government perspective and while at the federal government having the opportunity to work with state and local governments, you know, typically those that run the airport themselves and and then you know innovative partners like uh, like trusted traveler programs like Clear or technology manufacturers like Evolve. Um, what I've learned in my time is that it is absolutely a community. Um, when you look at an airport itself, it's built like a community. People come, they eat, they work, they sometimes they sleep, and, and they come and they go, and it's, you know, it's a large or, I guess, a small city that works there. And really what, what airports that have done well have learned is that a body of people, whether federal, whether private, whether local, working together, you know, really um, are much more successful. So, Again, under John Pistol's leadership at the TSA, I think the TSA really embarked on this willingness to embrace more of an innovative approach, if you want to call it a private sector approach. And, and I start to see that take hold in 
government. That being said, and, and again, I say this with all the love and respect in my heart, there are some obstacles that the government faces, some things where they on their own can't innovate independently because of some of you know, so, sort of the, the rules, if you will, that are in place there. Right. So their willingness recently to partner with uh, companies like Evolve, the, 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 the innovation task force that Administrator Neffinger has put in place is doing great work, I think, and really moving the dial in terms of uh, private-public partnerships in a way that makes sense. I mean, I think not really Evolve-related, but I think the innovation lanes that, that are popping up across the country are a good example of a need arising in the aviation space and the federal government and the private sector addressing the problem together as a jointly owned problem and coming up with a viable solution. And I'm hopeful that we'll see more of that uh, moving forward. Yeah, I think, and, and I've had this conversation with several people, government gets put into a really interesting and really difficult situation where they have to basically come up with solutions that can work for literally everyone. And it tends to be easy to live in this personal bubble. So for myself, who's someone who's very comfortable with existing technology and really interested in new technology, walking through places when I walk through airports and, and work with the airports that I work with from a professional standpoint, you, it's really easy to get frustrated because there are so many different solutions out there and, and so many other solutions out there and additional solutions. But that doesn't go for the same as my 88-year-old grandfather, right? So, and, and, and the security at the airport has to work just as well for me as it does for him. You know, there's the, there's the Freedom of Information Acts that you, uh, you know, the FOIA requests that the government deals with and all of their public information that has to be put out there really hinders them from, a, from an innovation standpoint and the fact that, you know, we've seen it time and time again, the FAA's budget and TSA's budget basically has to get approved every year. So to try to do long-term funding for innovation that you may not see payoffs for uh, years and years down the line is, is also a hurdle that, they, that the government has to jump. To their credit, you know, Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has opened up their, I guess, the Silicon Valley office. From what I understand, they're, they're trying to really increase those, those public-private partnerships uh, to push innovation forward. So it's, it's definitely, it's difficult. Uh, and I've, over the years, have learned <laughs> to kind of be a little bit more patient when it comes to, to government-funded entities in terms of, of the people-moving problems that they face because they can't do it as quickly as, as private companies can without worrying about leaving somebody behind. So, Chris, you brought up an interesting point that I think goes beyond public-private partnership and is a problem that the government experiences as well as the airport um, experiences, which is that the challenge of prediction and, and forecasting. So governments have a mandate, as you alluded to, to have some long-term planning um, to carry security and other things in the, in the airport world forward. And so we envision a future, we deduce requirements, and then acquisition and design decisions are made and justified accordingly. But ex the experience of the industry, um, the experience that, that Chris has, and not just aviation by any means, but demonstrates that long-term predictions are consistently mistaken. And when you, when you use your um, predictions to drive decisions that are brick-and-mortar decisions, there's 
very little that you can do when you when you've poured your last footer on Christmas Eve and circumstances change. So right. there is this this interesting challenge of um, that again I think is not just a governmental challenge. I think it's a government and airport challenge to be able to balance the need to have long-term forecasting, but then also to have um, high adaptability in the solutions they put in place, more resilience in in the uh, in the solutions they put in place in the near term, given that predictive failure is a near certainty. And and that's the thing. I mean, when you look at and I think you you talk you all talked about this in a um, blog post you put up uh, not too too long ago. You know, the hockey stick effect of of security and especially with artificial intelligence, the predictions that were made or that would have been made even five years ago in terms of artificial intelligence would have been completely off base in today's world, just how fast, for lack of a better term, uh, technology is evolving and, and looking at some of the things that are holding up a lot of other technologies, batteries and, and whatnot. Um, I think on the whole, when it comes to technology, battery technology is uh, it seems to be the number one thing holding up a lot of progression when it comes to further involvement of, of hardware technology, but it's it's not an easy thing that has to be that can be forecasted as, as you alluded to, Brandon. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say I agree with you. The acceleration, proliferation, and the diversification um, of changes, technical, technical as well as geopolitical, make it tougher, more predictable than it was in the past. But I think Chris, you know, has examples where even though it's it's very different and it's it's accelerating um, in a technology sense, it's always been the case that it that long term planning was hard to do. Right. And and I think dealing with governments from a legal standpoint, it's not they can't just invest all in on one platform, right? They it's not like for myself, where I can be completely bought into Apple products and own everything Apple uh, to make my life easy. The government can't just go up to a company and say, okay, we're going to give you X amount of millions or billions of dollars for the next 10, 20 years uh, to do all of our security. Those types of contracts tend to raise eyebrows, uh, especially when you transition a new administration every four to eight years uh, that are that's controlling the budget, and sometimes even two when you look at midterm elections. Those are the things that I think a lot of people, especially uh, well, not familiar with the aviation industry um, and federal funding, probably would be have a little bit more understanding on, on really how hard of a problem you guys are trying to tackle when it comes to security at uh, publicly funded arenas such as airports. Yeah, just to sharpen this point on prediction, though, I I would say that using an example from the aviation world, albeit the military aviation world, to the extent that unpredictability reigns, adaptability is at a premium. And so the F-22, for example, is a military airplane that has very low adaptability. Mm -hmm. It's precisely designed for a narrowly defined mission. It has trouble taking on other roles. It's really good at what it does, but it has trouble taking on other roles. And at the other end of the spectrum, the B-52 bomber is an airplane that has very high inherent resilience. It's essentially a flying box, and it's used as a platform for weapons, communications, and missions that were not and could not have been envisioned by the designers. So 
when we talk about how challenging it is and, and what the government should fund, what aviation, what airports should fund, prioritizing equipment that is more like the B-52, more like the box that has high inherent resilience by being adaptable rather than the you know, purpose-built F-22, I think is, a, I think is, a, is an actionable uh, way to look at it. And actually, that, that is a great segue to our next point, is, is the current state of security at airports. Are you all seeing that it is a very specific driven security system now, or is it an adaptability, you know, a system that's open to adaptability? Um, I look at things, to me, TSA has been a very reactive organization from the outside looking in, admittedly, but you see things like, okay, 9-11, then we get intense security screeners, and then there is a uh, attempted shoe bomber. Now we have to take off our shoes after the fact. There's the liquids attack. Now we have to take out our liquids, and they're in certain size containers. Is that still the current state of, of TSA, or are they moving towards a more adaptive, predictive target? So, so I think you've kind of, uh, in some respects, answered your own question earlier in the sense of, the cycle time, right? So, so you know, what's interesting with the TSA and the development of many of the technologies that are in use is that there's a real chicken or egg kind of view of when did something start getting developed versus when was there a significant event that maybe drove um, that development to spiral more quickly or that allowed an existing technology to now be deployed um, where it may not have been popular. I referenced the AIT from the 2010 timeframe. Those units, frankly, um, were, were ready before Christmas Day 2009, but it wasn't until after a significant event that there was enough momentum to, to allow them to be deployed system-wide, if that makes sense. So I think that the TSA, to your point, does get criticized for or accused of being reactionary. And in some respects, they are, like all of us. Um, you know, we, we react to things that we didn't anticipate yesterday now that we know that, that they're possible. Um, right. But in many respects, I think the TSA is working on, on being innovative and, you know, to use the expression, tightening up their OODA loop to try to stay inside um, the loop of the adversary. And I think, again, the, the innovation task force, I think um, um, AAAE's accelerator program, I think these are examples of organizations that are trying to push the envelope on technology development to have it fielded in advance of that next um, attack, if you will. Um, the one distinction that I would draw in the airports, just to go back to kind of the core of your question, Right. is that I think that there's still this um, somewhat static approach to security in checkpoints. I think that there's a system that essentially has worked, you know, for 15 years and some modifications have made it better. Um, some modifications arguably have made it worse, but there's tweaks here and there. But the checkpoint in of itself is probably, um, probably what you're going to see five years from now, maybe not 10, but probably five years from now it'll look similar. On the mm -hmm. flip side, though, I think what you're seeing is is more thinking and innovation outside the checkpoint. So, you know, how does the thinking change after Brussels? How does the thinking change after Istanbul? What do you have to do about more soft area targets, public spaces in airports? 
Um, what's the end solution for employee screening at an airport? Um, you know, what's, what's the right balance between enough screening to ensure that everybody is safe and yet not so much that the actual uh, supply chain gets, you know, pushed to a stop. So I think what you're going to see in terms of airport security innovation is probably innovations slightly outside the, the traditional checkpoint and the more less traditional areas of the airport. So Chris talked about um, wanting to have technology platforms that were not static in nature and talked about um, what's what's being done there and why that's why that's challenging. So just because we're trying to capture ideas about where the industry's headed, you know, just to give a concrete uh, illustration of what that would look like. And I, I'll preface this by saying, you know, we're a startup uh, company l- launching products, so I don't want to make this claim as, as something that is um, purchasable today, but just to um, understand what does it mean to have a platform that evolves um, and excuse the pun. Um, so <laughs> what, let's say a, a new, a new threat comes out. It could be 3d printed guns as a new threat. And, you know, we all remember when that, when that came out, right, or it could be right. a new, a new bad guy that everybody knows about. So in our world um, on the manufacturer side on the start on the company side, we would develop a spec based on that threat, whether that's defining what the material characteristics of the 3d printed gun are or finding images of this guy that we all want to catch. Then we tell our customers, we, we create, we tell our customers that, you know, the threat exists. We create a sample threat. We test our system against it. And then we upload that new data, that new software and that new data to our system. Then every system that's connected to this, um, to this platform, or we deliver a thumb drive so people can put it on their unconnected devices. And then you're ready and you're in position to detect that threat in hours to days. So mm-hmm. you compare that to what, what exists now um, with market-leading uh, companies and with uh, governmental processes, which could be uh, assumed to be months or, or years, depending on the, the nature of, the, of the, the response, and also have for the users the process of, you know, requesting a meeting, providing specs, provide, you know, getting a proposal, going through the requirements, development, acquisition, procurement, all that stuff, paying, you know, additional money, waiting. So that's hopefully an illustration of what a changed, if you change the game when it comes to um, platform adaptability, what it looked like when a new threat happened. It sounds like, in in my understanding, <laughs> that it's pretty much the same approach that Tesla is taking to cars. In ter- there's an update that needs to be sent to their cars. They can do it automatically at night or you know whatever at another at a time their the driver wishes. But the bottom line is is that the car is always learning um, and and able to learn from other cars, right? So the other cars on the Tesla network as well and, and exchanging information are, are your system. And I guess the best thing to do is to just kind of segue into Evolve now and, and talk a little bit about this the overall solution that you are providing um, to solve some of these problems. And the, from a software standpoint, you talked about the platform that you guys are working on um, as well as the hardware that you're also 
working on and, and the sensors that you're working on. So tell me a little bit about how Evolve came about and then where you all na- are now. Three, was it three years since you started, you said, Brennan? Yeah, that's right. So I can talk a little bit about how we came about, and then um, maybe Chris can talk about the, the solutions for aviation. So the, the overarching, the, the motto that you hear around here is to reinvent physical security. And a lot of that starts with a mission that I can, I can briefly outline, which is to say that the world we live in today is not safe. The, in some dimensions, you can you can make the argument that it is um, in some in some crime, uh, for example, we're we're sort of you know proceeding down a down a wonderful path. But when you when you talk about fatalities from terrorism, they've increased significantly since 9/11. They're accelerating, and, and importantly, the nature of the threat to aviation has changed from pocket knives to suicide vests and explosives. So for security folks who whose job it is to protect people, they have to innovate more than most in order to keep pace. And so, you know, something that you hear a lot on the news is a phrase, the new normal. And a really important question is whether we, we meaning all of us, believe that this is the new normal. The new um, normal being very long lines when you try to get someplace. Airports, but also stadiums, train stations, um, you name it. Security systems that have tons of false alarms because the technology employed doesn't pay off on the promise of its vision. Um, that's something I'm personally very, very, I'll say, obsessed obsessed with. Missed threats because the threats change, as we just described. And then incomplete coverage because security can't be everywhere at once. So this is, this is a, a, a terrible new normal. And it's sort of the question is, are we willing to throw this, uh, to follow the same model of more people, more time, and more money? So we think it's a new world. We need a new paradigm for security. Aviation is a wonderful place to talk about that new paradigm because we lived in a world where planes were the target and security was centralized, and now everything can be a target. And so we have to have distributed and randomized security protocols. And so that's our mission uh, in a nutshell, reinventing physical security. And we work its you know, it is the most amazing team on the planet for this goal. I'll just give a, a, a small glimpse into that, which is that, you know, a, a lot of the team has been in the detection business for a long, long time. They were part of a company called Reveal Imaging, making explosives detection equipment for check baggage, deployed to hundreds of airports in the U.S. and internationally. And you combine those uh, skills and experiences building mission critical systems with people and someone I work closely with Brian is was the platform lead the tech lead for the Game of Thrones and Star Trek games so it's this really cool mix of, of people working on that problem and um, you know I'll kind of leave it to Chris to talk uh, more about what we're doing from the from the product rollout scenes so I mean I think I think Brennan's context is really important but from a from a airport or, or aviation perspective, I mean, I think what you see with, with Evolve, first of all, is that like, like any company, you have to have sort of a launch product, and, and, and so we do, but we see ourselves as, as not so much a product manufacturer, although we are, as more of um, a company who's um, inherently focused on 
on on this this equation of of aviation security and, and beyond that really I would say soft target security beyond aviation and really thinking about and going back to one of the reasons why why I wanted to join Evolve is thinking about literally from 9/11 forward my mind focuses on how do you maintain achieve or maintain best in class security but restore um, an aspect of the way of life that, that we as Americans used to enjoy, um, whether that's seeing your loved ones off at a gate, whether that's the ability to leave your shoes on, your belt on, your jacket on, or whether that's the ability, again, now to preserve, to preserve your feeling of safety in a more public side of the airport. So, so Evolve is focused on building and delivering a platform that uses sensors in a variety of ways to ensure that we can identify high-risk individuals, low-risk individuals, identify threats hidden on the body, um, both metallic and non-metallic, use CCTV in an innovative and in a learning way, and, and really just to, to get smarter and smarter about how we use resources in the realm of aviation security to address tomorrow's threat. That's what I think we're focused on. And so the platform that you guys are, are talking about is, is the Mosaic platform. The sensors that are feeding data to this platform, are they any kind of sensors or do they have to be evolved sensors? So, Chris, in, in, the answer is that they do not have to be evolved sensors. And okay. I'll just illustrate um, through the example of employee screening, so in an yeah. aviation context. So... That's an example of a solution, a concrete solution that that um, that the platform enables. And what that comes down to, employee screening, is knowing who you are and what you have, verified through face recognition and that metallic and non-metallic threat recognition. So you take that example with metallic and non-metallic threat recognition. We would love to use a existing, you know, third-party wonderful product that that operates uh, as people walk through at the at normal pace it doesn't mm-hmm. exist so we've spent uh, we've spent a lot of time building that soup to nuts um, building this the hardware and software to make that happen so that's an evolved sensor and with that sure you know we can put on we can add on different off-the-shelf sensors but fundamentally we had to we had to conjure that uh, that system ourselves. When it comes to analyzing video, when it comes to you know taking in inputs from your normal camera, that's something where we don't need to construct that sensor. We want to use uh, what's out there. And with CCTV, there is a huge number of CCTV cameras, so almost 300 million cameras worldwide um, mm-hmm. in the CCTV cameras. So we don't think the world needs more of those, and we're not in that business of selling those cameras, but we want to be able to connect into the cameras that have already been um, been installed. So it's a combination of both, and we've put a lot of time and effort into thinking about how you can quickly onboard sensors beyond just the ones that I've mentioned. We know that access control and other sensors will become um, part of future solutions, but cameras and the... And the um, active millimeter wave sensors are kind of our primaries today. Sure. 
And and so the Mosaic platform that basically acts as a net to, to catch all of this data is also where you guys are, are implementing your artificial intelligence components. That seems to be the business model. The problem with a lot of the data, and I guess is the reason for, for y'all's use of artificial intelligence, is the more data or the more sensors, the more data, the more noise, right? So that's the biggest problem that you're hearing now from people is we've got all these things that are connected. We can collect all this data, but we really don't know what it means. Um, is that where the mosaic AI comes into effect, essentially? Yeah, I mean, so noise is is a huge, huge challenge for security. And so our our platform, if I, if you if you sketch it out, it starts with sensors. They get information about the reality of the situation. The next step is AI, which can analyze it very well, and we use modern AI, deep neural networks, to be able to do um, incredible data analysis in a way that only AI can. But the next step then is human IQ. So, you know, we we just call it IQ, but human judgment, which adds a level of understanding about the uh, analysis, fills in gaps, um, and also in our system helps to augment and train the AI. And then the last piece is operations, to take action on it. And this is a this is a so four part step. What's what's interesting is that the AI and the IQ work together in a way that is symbiotic. It's uh, the strengths of the machine and the strengths of the human. And an example of that is that if you just have AI alone, it'll work wonderfully well on a large number of of the examples that it sees. You know, it's well equipped for. 80 to 90, 95% of the task, depending on what it is, just generally speaking. And the remaining 5 to 20% ends up being your headache. It ends up being examples where the AI was not quite so sure about it. And to make it concrete, it's the, you know, you're looking at a perimeter and there are going to be a bunch of examples where the person is clearly walking in a field in sunshine at 4 p.m., and it's a person there. The AI's got it. But when it's dark and a deer moves around or a person is wearing unique outerwear or the tree is blowing, something like that, then the AI has lower confidence about what it's seeing. And so by setting up a system where we can ask humans for their judgment on those um, maybe cases, what we're, what we're doing is two things. We're allowing those to be validated prior to the end user who has the most precious resource situation of all. The, the, the resource of the end user on the ground is, is the thing that has to be protected at, at all costs. And then also, it, it's the case with modern AI that it trains from data. So it, you give it a bunch of examples, and it uses those to get better and better and better. And so what examples do you want to give it optimally? Well, you want to give it examples that are tough. It doesn't do the AI much good at all to get a bunch of examples of things that it can handle incredibly well, just like if you're trying to you know, have your middle schooler learn um, algebra or whatever, if you go through the multiplication tables. that's They know that. What you need are um, examples that challenge it, that are that push the frontier. And so by 
setting up this process for filtering out the noise, we've also created a way to um, have the AI continuously learn. So that we think this is a this is a game changing approach to to this problem, and you know we're not we are not the first to do it. Um, you, you'd be surprised to know that uh, a lot of what Amazon, Google, and um, you know Expensify, as a random example, when you submit your receipts, you know when you do travel for a for a conference, you submit your receipt. If it's clean and legible, then that's fully automated. They do it does optical character recognition and can find and transcribe it. But if you've been, you know, at a conference in Florida and you have a sweaty receipt in your pocket that's been crumpled up and you take a picture of it in a dark, you know, Lincoln town car on your way to the airport, then the AI can make a guess and maybe it can see a couple numbers, but it can't do it very well. And so rather than just, you know, having it fail, having the process fail, Expensify says, okay, AI is not confident. Let's get an actual human to help with transcription. So Mm -hmm. we're porting over this model that Google and Amazon perfected um, to be able to really dramatically cut down on the noise that the end user sees. AI is is the new buzzword, right? To me, what AI is now is what ride sharing was about three years ago, you know, when it was becoming more and more popular. AI seems to be the new thing that every company is trying to kind of throw on its, uh, like the mark, the, the individual marketplace that Uber created, uh, where people were able to work for themselves and everybody wanted to be, you know, a marketplace platform for insert whatever industry uh, you want. The issue that a lot of people are having with AI, especially with security, is the big brother concept, right? The Orwellian future. How do you all work and and almost balance that line of saying, listen, this, this is for security purposes, but at the same time, we're not going to infringe on any freedom, you know, any rights or anything like that. So to get to get at the first part of your question, which was or the, of your statement, which is around the prevalence of the AI term, and it you know it's up there with ride sharing or how ride sharing was, I would just offer on that that you know, there's a great quote, and I can't um, I can't correctly attribute it on the fly, but it's that there is no such thing as an AI company, or there should not be. It's right. there's a company that delivers some use case really well. Right. And they use AI to do it. And so when we talk about using AI, you know, what, really what I think a user should hear is I get, I'm a user, I get 10 or 20 or 30 false alarms per camera per day. And this new system and process and, and technology can get me 10 per camera per month. That takes it from being a buzzword to making it something that is much more significant and much less of a, of a marketing term. Um, to your point on privacy and on the dystopian future, so it's a really interesting and important problem. The ways that startups like ours counter that or uh, deal with that is through um, establishing a priori some code of ethics and it seems silly to do it because as a startup you're 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 relatively powerless and versus someone who's 
you know, massive or, or versus the U.S. Right. government. But it's it's important, and so we've we've had experts from the from the legal community, and then also from our operational community, which is you know which consists of um, former leaders at CIA, NYPD, counterintelligence, DHS, Secret Service, FBI, TSA, and those individuals all, in some capacity, were charged with safeguarding privacy, and so we've we engage with them to inform our view on what our you know, proactive approach is on it. Build that into the technology to the extent that we can. And then the the most important thing, which I don't know if it's a satisfying answer, is to stay heavily engaged because I don't think any one of us knows exactly where where this goes. And so, uh, you know, I've seen computer vision start to be very dramatically improved even in the time that I've been engaged in that field. And what happens online when computers can see and understand like they can read text? Right. I think there is a there is a significant privacy dialogue that takes place in this in this generation, and so we stay very very deeply engaged with that. Um, I work on those kinds of ethics of AI matters with two or three you know organizations uh, that policy focused ones to ensure that we're that I'm staying very informed about it but but that's I think where where we've we've put our efforts today. Chris, I'd like to get your opinion on this or your insight to this in terms of precheck and the rollout of TSA precheck and the background checks involved in that because I think there's a difference uh, between the AI taking over the world, right? So the Elon Musk's prediction of the future of computing where where Terminator comes in and and teams up with Skynet and and the whole thing's done, you know, we're all done for. But uh, there's a difference between that and and AI starting to connect what would then have been unconnectable dots and starting to really put people – and citizens starting to make generalizations on citizens based on comparing computer search history to trending topics to travel, you know, an individual's travel, and essentially taking away that innocent until proven guilty uh, motto, which the country's founded upon. It's been, I guess, not an issue in the past because all of the data that was collected, as far as the public was concerned, and I don't know what the NSA has. Uh, deep in in Utah, whatever wherever their new newest facility is being built in, but it, it's it's been so much data that it was only really connected when an individual person was being targeted. Now with AI, everyone can be targeted, you know, at any given point in time. Um, so how did you guys deal with that when 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 PreCheck was rolling out, and and versus where are you seeing that heading now? That same type of mindset. I'm going to answer really generally first, and then I'll I'll dig in more on the pre-check side and give a couple other examples. But I think that, you know, as, as you started to ask the question, as I'm listening to Brendan um, speak about it, the thing that I think, and obviously I can't speak for all Americans, but I can speak for myself and I can speak for probably thousands of people that of all the things I've done wrong in my life, I'm grateful that people, you know, are always saying thank you for pre-check. It's, right. <laughs> it seems like one thing that, that people oh, I, uh, enjoy that the federal people. government did. I am absolutely one of those people. <laughs> and, and, and so when I think about that, what, what I really think in the end is 
we as uh, as people are looking for our lives to be made easier. And in some respects, um, again, to have some of our, uh, it's a little bit of a paradoxical way of using the word, but our freedoms restored. So when I think about AI in our lives, if if my belief is that it's going to make my life easier, I'm probably all for it. If my belief is it's going to make someone else's life easier in their ability to get involved in my life, maybe I'm against it. So one of the, the value propositions, obviously, with the pre-check, um, with the technology that I think we're deploying at Evolve, is that it's, it's not just technology that makes security better. It's also technology that makes the human experience better. And so I think to the degree that you can balance those things, um, I think the public in general is more accepting of AI if there is a value proposition for them. Now, that being said, and to get to your, your pre-check question, I, I do want to really stress to you that, um, that I would uh, back of the envelope estimate that we spent as much or probably more time evaluating privacy impact as we did evaluating security impact in mm-hmm. the design phase of PreCheck. It was a huge part of what we did. And I would tell you um, that, you know, the, the, the media reports frequently that, that, that uh, the PreCheck program has grown to X and its ultimate goal is Y. Part of the, the delta between X and Y is that that there's been a lot of consideration about what information the government wants to look at and what it won't look at. And that is because, uh, in defense of them, it's because the government, I think, takes this issue of privacy very seriously. And at least in my experience with PreCheck, and I've been gone now for a while, but in my experience with PreCheck, I'm really always erred on the side of ensuring privacy was, um, was taken seriously um, even if that meant the program couldn't grow as quickly as it other, otherwise might. So I think that's really the nutshell is privacy is center stage with programs like PreCheck. The company that I worked for, Clears Privacy, um, in fact, that's a company that's regulated by the TSA. And I would tell you again, in that instance, the TSA uh, is seemingly more concerned, rightfully, potentially, more concerned with Clears' approach to privacy than it is with some of the other uh, facets of that operation, again, because it takes it very seriously. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it's an issue that I have internal debates about because there is the convenience factor, right? And and it's very easy to slip in, at least from my perspective, it's very easy to slip into the, well, the mindset of, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then, you know, I don't have anything to worry about. On the other hand, I, I hear people that don't have that mindset and really are afraid of that mindset being becoming, as, as you talked about earlier, Brennan, the new norm and the concerns that, that come with it, especially in our industry. And, and I think it holds true for every industry that it's very easy for people to fall into a bubble, right? Of, and, and when it comes to security, uh, the mindset of, well, we in the aviation industry know that security is X needed tend to... And it isn't just with security, I, I say that, but it, it's with every part. You know, we, I understand when a flight runs a little late because I know the logistics behind what's happening, uh, but that doesn't mean that the people that are flying to Disney World, the family of four, may, doesn't know that because dad's an accountant and mom's an attorney, uh, don't know the logistics of an airport, so they don't have 
the under the patience that comes with the understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, and I think that with when it comes to security, you know, Brennan, you talked earlier about adopting kind of an internal mission statement or, 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 or uh, ethics policy that my concern, and I'm not claiming this is the case that evolved, but my concern is that with certain companies that are instituting artificial intelligence, uh, that they kind of fall into that bubble and that jadedness of their ethics policy. Um, I don't know if you've seen well, that at any other companies. Yeah, so I would say two points. One is, along with this privacy imperative, is this notion that um, we, you know, every individual has a fundamental right to security. Adversaries are innovating in their approach to take that away from individuals. And we're talking about using technology to shift advantage back to the good guys. Um, mm-hmm. As far as the concern about are AI companies thinking about it, I would say when it comes to AI work um, in the domains in which I'm familiar, which are you know decision systems for for security, where you know you would expect there there to be some some heightened privacy concern relative to sort of a uh, well, I was going to say a virtual assistant, but that might have some privacy concerns as well. Um, <laughs> I, I would say there's a huge debate going on right now about it. There's right. a huge debate, and you brought up the Terminator, and that's Every article about it has a Terminator picture. I would just say that it's not, there is not a threat that looms because of spontaneous malevolence, you know, a la the Terminator. It's because there's this idea of adherence to goals in situations where we haven't told the AI to do the exact right thing. So it's about unpredictability and the potential irreversibility of deploying this, what is basically an optimization process. So, you know, this... This is something that comes up in military circles. It's a huge debate around like the use of it in weapons systems. I think what's what's certainly true about the work that Evolve is doing is we're trying to take what is a process that's noisy today, for example, in the CCTV realm, and make mm-hmm. it substantially less noisy. And and that's we're not you know introducing new data in order to do that. We're not opening new questions about that, um, but we are using the force of technology to make it better. That doesn't mean that we won't continue to engage on this, but I can t- I can give you some confidence that the academic community in AI is very, very much engaged in, in that in that thinking and I think that, that permeates to, to companies like yeah. ours. I do. I think. I think you're right. The the Terminator style worst case scenario is is totally plays to a media commercialization and and right like keep watching, take, tune in to to our to our blog or our our website for updates on AI because you know the next post may be about how you're everybody's going to die uh, <laughs> and computers are going to kill us all. I think that that is a, a, a definitely a uh, sensationalized version of the threats that are to come. But to kind to of touch on this last point, how is Evolve um, or how is the AI community in general kind of approaching the inherent biasness? And, and, and people say that AI computers are not biased, which is true, but I think there's always going to be some type of bias on the programmer standpoint, unintentional, not saying that's intentional bias, uh, but you look at the computers or the AIs that Google has rolled out for for facial recognition on photos, you know, that was biased to some extent towards white people because 
the people that were programming them, the story was that the AI, the facial recognition program, was biased towards the people that looked like the people that coded it, right? How how is Evolve working against that inherent bias? So, Chris, I think it's fundamentally a data problem. And with um, the work that we do at Evolve, so we're trying to detect concealed or open-carried metallic and non-metallic threat objects. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to detect what those look like in the data, in the signals um, that we get back from our sensors. And so when we talk about when we talk about that valid concern, you know, in reality, we our bias challenge there is, well, we, we simulate these threats in our labs. We work with laboratories that have cataloged IEDs that have been used. We, we just, you know, we try to get as much as we can to capture mm-hmm. the variation of what you see. And if we take only a subset of that, then we'll have worse ability to capture the to detect the thing that, that was underrepresented in the data. So with folks working on online images, you know, if they have images of, of, of one nationality versus another, that's where their bias problem comes, comes out. And it's, it's just, it's a little different for, for our problem. So sure. it's not that we don't have to worry about it. I think everybody has to worry about it in the software they write, whether it's AI or, or otherwise. But it's fundamentally a data problem. We have very unique data that we're working with, and we just have to do our homework with, uh, with getting the right data. Yeah, I mean, I think that the that arguably could be the problem, right? So when you're testing facial recognition, if you're using family photos, the AI is going to learn and be and and learn what your family looks like, uh, so it'll naturally match people that look like your family. So yeah, I think that 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 is the right solution. Adding more different types of data, you know, diversifying your data can can really bring down that overall uh, potential for bias. So to to kind of wrap up our conversation, I know we've we've kind of been going on for a while. I kind of want to take a step back now that we've sufficiently freaked out all the listeners on <laughs> the impact of of artificial intelligence and talk about the future of security and and how Evolve sees security ev- evolving. Uh, that that pun is just unavoidable. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional by your founders, but if it was, good on them for, for the marketing and, and brand awareness. Um, but talking about the future of security and, and how to combat really against attacks that you don't, you know, we talked about that you don't, you can't foresee, and maybe attacks that aren't even physical in terms of suicide vests or guns, but biological uh, or virtual. So I'll take a a stab at the answer now. I'll avoid uh, the virtual discussion because Brendan is a lot smarter than I am. So I'll stay away from that and (laughs) stick to the evolution of kind of physical security but, you know, I mean, and, and without being doom and gloom, I think we all kind of recognize that security is here to stay. I think we recognize that that whether it's al-Qaeda yesterday or ISIS tomorrow, that there, there, there will probably always be a group or groups of people that are intent on inflicting terror where they can. And, you know, aviation is certainly an example of where that has happened historically, and more recently, you're seeing both sort of an, an evolution of that attack in the aviation space, but you're also seeing it spill beyond aviation into other areas. So in terms of Evolve's thinking through that, that problem, I mean, it, it really is 
I think, twofold. It's a recognition that it's, that it's going to happen in the sense of that there are going to be bad people planning bad things with some capability to carry out their, their attack, and that our mission is to get ahead of them, again, get inside their OODA loop, be able to create technology that addresses not yesterday's threat but tomorrow's threat and does it in a way that allows us to continue our way of life, which is a way of life that is based on freedoms. And that means I should be able to walk into a mall without putting my hands over my head or without spinning around or without stopping to be frisked. Mm -hmm. It means that I should be able to continue my daily life in a way that recognizes a need for security but doesn't completely surrender to the notion of changing my lifestyle. I think that's what Evolve's mission is. I think that's what we're focused on is creating technology that allows you to be screened at the speed of life in order to be safe but also be free. And let me ask you this, Chris. Do you think that airports are still as big a target as they once were? Uh, I mean, you look at, you've mentioned soft targets. Surely there are other places in the world and even across the country that collect larger number of people in one spot than an airport does. I mean, I think, so, so first of all, just, you know, for the record, right, uh, stepping outside of the federal government and, and stepping outside of my role at TSA, I certainly don't have access to the same information I did in that role. Right. So sure. I don't sure. want to presume things that I don't know to be fact. Um, that being said, it's, it's my personal belief that aviation um, will continue to be a target. You know, I think people don't always recognize, you know, the, the sheer volume, two plus million people a day going through that sector, a large airport sees, you know, as many people 365 days a year as a, a, a football stadium sees 10 times a year, including uh, mm. preseason. So I do think that aviation will be a target. Remember, there's the network impact, the, the, the notion that an attack in one sector in aviation does have a ripple effect, not just throughout the country, but, but frankly, the world. So I think for those reasons, it will remain attractive. I think you are seeing though a shift. Um, I talked earlier about the, the checkpoint um, and, and how it's been successful over the last 15 years. And as a result of that, I think what you, what you see is, is the adversary adapting to, to other locations within the airport. We've seen attacks from outside the U.S. into the U.S. We've seen attacks at softer sides of, of the airports and then other, other locations as well. So I don't know that I answered your question. Uh, if I were going to try to summarize it, I would say I believe that aviation will continue to be a target. Yeah. Um, I do, however, think that other soft targets um, are becoming more and more attractive to the adversary at the same time. And Evolve's solutions are not just solely for airports. I think it's important for our listeners to, to kind of point that out, is, is that you all are building technology and a platform that can be implemented at an airport, at malls, at, at stadiums, and et cetera, correct? Absolutely. I think that's really an important thing to understand is that for Evolve, aviation is one important aspect of what we do, but it is only one aspect. We think that um, there are soft targets um, really all over, whether that be a sports stadium, a mall, a, a business park. There's a number of different places where traditional security solutions may be too large, they may be too expensive, they may not be agile enough or portable mm -hmm. enough. And we think that our, um, that our products 
allow venues like those to, you know, really to benefit from a best-in-class security in a way that, again, is nimble and that fits inside their footprint. Yeah. So, so Brendan, to kind of to kind of bring you in to the same question, uh, in terms of the future of security, is there a and and I would assume that this plays into an artificial intelligence aspect as well, but the learning curve to adapt to things that aren't traditional, you know, weapons uh, attacks. Is, is that something that Evolve is working towards as well and, and looking at for the future? Yes, certainly. So I, I love the way that Chris framed that. And I, w- I would just say, you know, what is, the, what is the future of security? I think we're seeing it. It's inexpensive and highly asymmetric terror. And it's the kind of using the kinds of, you know, weapons, implements, strategies that, um, that have, that show a path to success. So something that, you know, maybe hasn't been tried before and, and isn't the design basis threat for the existing systems. And so I would say, you know, security has to be massively distributed. And that's part of the reason why we're not limited to aviation, certainly not limited to aviation checkpoints. That's, that's, that's actually not where we, we, we focus. And so I think one, one point on, on our approach that I'll, I'll relay is that there, another mantra is sort of not another gray box. Like the world doesn't need another gray box. And that's been pretty powerful because a lot of the way that security countermeasures have, uh, a lot of security countermeasures have evolved to be a very, a variation of, you know, a gray box. And you can't look to the next decade of protecting soft targets with and think that any one gray box does the trick. So AI has transformed countless domains, will touch every facet of of human endeavor. And in security, it manifests in being able to learn as situations change. So I hope that, you know, what's, what's become clear through the course of this is that we prioritize adaptability we think long and hard about how to create systems that aren't um, obsolete or gapped, you know, on day on day one. And AI is is a tremendous way to be able to ensure that over the course of a partnership with a customer, we're giving them a capability that's going to learn to stay ahead of uh, to the extent that that we can of the security challenges. Do either of you see? a future where airports are essentially back to where they were pre 9-11. I mean, you look at entities like Disney World, which I think last year had 20 million uh, visitors where they're not walking through your typical airport security measures. And and based on, I did a quick search on the top 50 airports, I think 20 million uh, annual would be similar to the 24th, 25th busiest airport. Do you see security going to that, back to that type of kind of able to see your loved ones leave the gate or, or greet them at the gate when they come back in? So, so I'd like to say yes, but, but being a little bit, being a little bit practical, I, I don't see that in the near future. I think that, that there are concerns beyond just, you know, security. In fact, I would, tell you that that largely speaking the issue 
with loved ones at the gate is less about security and more about throughput, more about the ability to get both travelers and visitors through in a timely manner. You know, for me, what I think we all know about aviation, uh, you know, outside of security, but just in general, I think we know that aviation seems to be growing faster than the infrastructure can support it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that makes it difficult probably for anyone to seriously consider um, opening doors, at least opening them wide open for the general public. You may see some other scenarios. I know, for example, there are, there are airports that have hotels that work to allow those hotel guests to get through security, to get to a restaurant, things like nope. that. Um, but in general, I don't think you're going to see a return to sort of the 10th of September in that regard. Yeah. I, I, and I, Go ahead, Brandon. I I was just going to say, I I don't think we can predict the future, but I think we can help shape it. And I realize how awfully uh, trite that sounds, but (laughs) I'm just, in honesty, I'm listening to the question, and I'm I'm moved to say that, well, if we could curve the, you know, expanse and kind of get back to a more, a simpler outcome wouldn't that be something i mean wouldn't that be wouldn't that be wonderful and i think the way it looks is more of the unimpeded flow of 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 traffic less noise there's a great quote by oliver wendell holmes that says i would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity but i would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity and what i think that means is you know we may not go back to september 10th um and certainly since september 11th Things have gotten complex in post-ISIS world, much more so. But getting to this simplicity, and what I think that means is not just simple without protection, but getting to a protected, fortified security position that carries with it free flow of people and, and, and so forth, on the other side of complexity is something worth, worth trying for. Yeah. Well, and Chris, you you brought up an, an interesting point that kind of segues to the last question that I, I kind of like to present to anybody anybody that I interview that deals with infrastructure uh, at airports, and and the fact that our existing system is being way over capacity for the amount of travelers we have uh, that continue to rise since the recession. But if there are a few airports around the country uh, that are either in the process of or will soon to be embarking on constructions of new terminals. So from an evolved standpoint, from both of your standpoints, if there was one thing that, or, or a few things, it doesn't necessarily have to be one, but a few things that airports should really try to focus or, or, or put into place when building new terminals in terms of security, what would y'all's recommendation be? Besides installing Evolves equipment at every door and <laughs> sensors around the airport. I, I was thinking, man, what a softball question to end with. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> no, you know, in all seriousness, from my perspective, um, I, I would say, and, and Brendan alluded to this earlier in his um, in, in an answer. I can't recall the question, but when he talked about you know brick and mortar decisions that may be complete on I think he said on on Christmas Eve and then obsolete on Christmas Day. I think that from my experience with airports, if I was going to encourage any airport who was in a construction phase to do anything, it would be to overbuild the 
brick and mortar to the, you know, to the degree that they're in a location that, you know, that space allows for it. But I think building for today's security apparatus will always get you in trouble because it's going to change. And when it changes, the footprint will change and the power requirements will change and everything will change. So to the extent an airport can build, um, you know, put some extra base in uh, a checkpoint, as an example, or, or, or uh, when they're looking at employee parking lots, I'm trying to evaluate how security might fit into that equation. But, but really building some buffer in their existing requirements so that when security changes, they actually have the footprint to adjust to it. I can picture, I'm not going to name them because I'll, I'll make the other ones angry, but I can picture a half a dozen airports over the last six years that did that. And when there was a change to a security protocol, they were able to adapt much more quickly and easily because their infrastructure allowed for it. And Brandon, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I would say two things. One is it'll naturally be the case that you'll want to have your design orientation increase your reliance on software rather than hardware because software can be more readily adapted or swapped out. And I realize we make a hardware system, and I, I, I mean to say that you have to look at whether the the intelligence in it comes from the hardware or software. So a fingerprint reader, for example, is something where the software and hardware is very coupled, um, Where whereas if you have a camera that can run face recognition, you can accomplish the same biometric aim, but with, with a, pr a principally software-focused um, thing. Um, AI is great in that regard because you have there a software system that achieves immediate adaptive response without uh, human intervention. And the second thing is just having a requirements process that places a premium on operational flexibility. And I, 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 I know this to be true, and I don't mean to say that it isn't, but an example of something that I think the DOD is looking at, which could be um, relevant, is you know a new criteria that um, has a new metric of merit that says, is what is the um, level of operational flexibility of the equipment that I'm buying? If you looked at equipment today versus, uh, you know, comparing two, two offerings, could you prioritize deliberately the equipment that's most adaptable um, via some system of evaluation? Okay. Well, if anyone is interested in learning more about Evolve, where should they go? So they can go to our website, which is www.evolve.com technology.com and then Chris and I will be uh, with other members of our team uh, in Washington DC at the AEEE um, Security Summit in early December right around the uh, I think the release of this podcast and then we'll have some other uh, upcoming events that we can you can get more information on via our website. Yeah, and we'll definitely we'll put the links uh, to the show notes to your website as well as are you guys on social media, Twitter, or Facebook, or anything? We are. So Twitter would be a good place to follow us. We put we put out blog posts talking about some of the things you mentioned, the mission motivation. So we're on Twitter. We're Evolve Technology. Um, that's our that's our handle on Twitter. Okay. Yeah, it wouldn't be a startup if you uh, if you included all the vowels in a word. <laughs> <laughs> No time for that. 
well, I, I thank both of y'all for, for joining us. I know we went a little bit over longer than I initially expected, but it was a really intriguing conversation. You're right from the beginning, Brendan, that, tech, that security, while it isn't sexy, is very important. I can imagine a lot of the conversations that you have put people, some people, in very uncomfortable situations, whether it comes to grasping with what the quote-unquote new norm is or just trying not to scare the living hell out of them uh, when it comes down to some of the when, – when people start thinking about the possibilities. Um, but the work that you all are doing with Evolve and the approach that you're taking, uh, especially the AI and, and going back to uh, trying to make it as unbiased as possible, I think is really important and is setting the tone for the future approach of, of just making an overall travel experience safer. So thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you yeah, very much. It's been a great conversation. Once again, we want to thank Brennan and Chris for their time. Also, Brennan, once again, for his service to our country at the risk, I would imagine, of his sanity. I'll drop a link to all of the things that we mentioned in the show notes. Uh, if you are heading to the AAAE Security Summit this week, make sure you check them out. They will be exhibiting during the conference, so stop by the booth and let them know that you heard their interview on the podcast. Of course, as always, we want to thank Bruno Masson. You can check out his music at brunomasson.com. And finally, the airport planning firm Cutchins & Grow, who without them, this podcast would not be possible. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one.